If you have a copy of the scriptures, please turn with me this morning to Psalm chapter 2. This is God's word for us, his people, this morning. Here it is. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. This is God's word. Let's pray and ask for his help to understand it this morning. Father, we thank you that you haven't left us alone to figure out what you would have us believe or how you would have us live as your people, but you've given us your word. And we pray this morning that you would send the Holy Spirit to us, that you would open our eyes and our ears and our hearts and our minds. Show us our sin, but Lord, we pray even more that you would show us Christ. And we pray these things in his name. Amen. Over the past few months, I have learned on the internet about a phenomenon in our culture. That phenomenon is a group of people who call themselves sovereign citizens. Have you all heard of sovereign citizens? Yes. Sovereign citizens uh, are people that have declared independence from the United States of America. Uh, And they live their lives trying to flee off any sort of governmental oversight. And what you find on the internet are all kinds of videos of them getting pulled over for things like a brake light being out, refusing to present any documentation, telling the police that they reject their authority, and then going to jail um, for a taillight. It's... It's kind of ridiculous, and it actually kind of seems like a lot of these people are just uh, sort of motivated by a desire not to pay taxes anymore or do things like get driver's licenses or register their vehicles. But the idea is they have declared themselves sovereign. They are autonomous individuals in their own mind, and they are going their own way. Psalm 2 opens with a similar 
declaration. In verses 1 and 2, we have kings and rulers and nations and peoples of the earth who are declaring their independence from God and from the king that God has established. They are plotting a rebellion. So when we're looking here at Psalm 2 and at the beginning here, we're not seeing kings and rulers who are persecuting or oppressing God's people. These are kings and rulers who are meant to be in subjection to God and his king who are plotting a rebellion. And that's why in verse 3, what they say is, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. The idea there of, of bursting bonds and casting away cords is that they are rejecting the authority of God. They are throwing off the obligations that God has put upon them as his subjects. They are going their own way. They are pursuing their own autonomy. They are seeking to be self-sufficient people. They are rebelling against God's authority and God's law. I'm glad that it's only other people that do that. We all do this, don't we? We miss the point of Psalm 2 if we look at this and think, great, there are evil people out there who are throwing off God's authority and trying to go their own way. But the fact of the matter is, all of us individually want to go our own way. We all want to declare ourselves sovereign citizens. We all want to and all do every day rebel against God's authority and God's law. Our hearts want to burst the bonds apart. Our hearts want to cast off the cords, the obligations that the Lord has put on us. And friends, there are a ton of different ways this can look. And oftentimes when we think about what it looks like to reject God's authority and to reject God's law, we think that this primarily looks an irreligious way. That people embrace wickedness. That people um, reject the standards that God built into his creation. That people, uh, you know, are unfaithful to one another. That people uh, embrace greed and corruption, that they abuse others, that they are outwardly wicked. We can often see, and that is one way that people do in fact rebel against God in this irreligious kind of way. But friends, the truth of the matter is, there's also religious ways to rebel against God. Rejecting God's authority, throwing off the obligations that we have to God does not just look like outward wickedness, obvious kind of outward wickedness. It can also look very religious. It can look very moral. It can look very impressive. And I say this and I mention this because I want us to be warned 
not to think that rebelling against God is only something other people do. Friends, when we come to church, when we worship, when we tithe, when we volunteer, when we pray, when we read our Bibles, when we do all of this sort of religious activity, and in our minds, what we're hoping is that God is going to make our lives better. We are rebelling against God. If our religious activity becomes a way for us to control our own lives, to be self-sufficient, to be autonomous, and we are simply doing it like we're putting money in a vending machine, hoping that God is going to give us a good return on our investment with comfort and ease and a life of pleasure, then friends, we are rebelling against God just as much as someone who is outwardly flouting God's law. We all do this all the time. We are a rebellious people. We all want to be sovereign. And it's important for us to note, not only do all of us do this all the time, whether our rebellion looks outwardly wicked or outwardly moral, but verse 1 tells us that all of our rebellion is in vain. It's in vain. It doesn't work. We can never actually rebel against God. We can never actually declare ourselves independent of God. It just doesn't work any more than you can declare yourself independent of gravity and jump off your roof. You can't declare yourself independent from God because the only reason your molecules in your body hold together from second to second is because God is the one doing it. We cannot declare independence from God. God is the ultimate reality in everything. And friends, reality always wins. Reality always wins. If you jump off your roof, doesn't matter. Gravity is undisturbed by you thinking you are no longer bound by its laws. You will fall. You will break your ankle. The beginning of Psalm 2 tells us, rebellion is everywhere and it is absolutely futile. So how does God respond to our rebellion? How does he respond to people that he has made who declare their independence from him and just go their own way? You see it in verse 4. The Lord laughs. He holds them in derision. This laughter that the Lord uh, exhibits here in verse 4 is not humor. And it's not that the Lord is taking lightly the rebellion against him. His laughter demonstrates that God is not insecure or threatened by the rebellion of humanity. God isn't threatened by the fact that people go their own way. God is not anxious that people don't like him. 
God is not worried about what is going on in the world. He is not anxious about the world. God is not insecure or threatened by sovereign citizens. And I say this because I think it's really important for us to know that it's dangerous for us to think of God as some sort of insecure or needy being that's just sort of grateful for whatever attention we happen to give him, whatever morsels of devotion we provide, that he's just sort of really glad to have some, fr- some friends. God is not insecure. God is not needy. God is not desperately hoping that someone is going to like him. He's not a new kid at a new school who's eating lunch by himself and hoping that people will come and be with him. That is not the picture presented in Psalm 2. God is secure. God is not worried or threatened by rebellion. And he's not only secure in the face of human rebellion. Verse 5 tells us that God will, in fact, confront human sin and human rebellion. And when he does that, the Bible says he will do it in his wrath. The wrath of God is another topic that is not uh, one often preached on uh, anymore. And it's important that we even just think for a moment about what God's wrath is. Because I think we hear the word wrath and we think that like God is losing his temper. Like he finally just got to the end of his rope and he kind of blows up at people. But that is not what God's wrath is. God's wrath is the response of God's holy character to sin and rebellion in the world. His wrath is what happens when his holiness meets our sin. He hates that this world is not what he made it to be, and he hates the fact that our sin is what has made it that way. And God, in his wrath, has a message. In his wrath, God declares something to these rebellious people that includes us, and his message is in verse 6, and what he says is, I have a king. That's God's message in his wrath. I have a king. What does that mean? What does that have to do with anything when we're thinking about rebellion and God's wrath? Well, fortunately, the psalm continues and explains and helps us see a little more about this king in verses 7 through 9. What's the deal with this king? Verse 7 says, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. It's helpful to note that in Acts 4, uh, this psalm is attributed uh, to King David, even though we don't see a, an ascription here in Psalm 2 itself. And that makes sense because the decree that seems to be referenced there in verse 7 actually comes from 2 Samuel chapter 7, where the Lord God makes a promise to King David. And the promise he makes to King David is that David will have an eternal throne. 
that David will never lack a king in his line reigning over Israel. And God says that the king who reigns on David's throne will be called the Son of God. And that's helpful for us to note because sometimes we come to the New Testament and we see Jesus referred to as the Son of God and we think immediately, oh, that means he's divine, uh, which indeed Jesus is divine. But most of the time we see the phrase Son of God in the New Testament, what it means is that Jesus is the king. Jesus is the king who is reigning on David's throne. Son of God is a kingly title first. And what you see here in Psalm 2 is that this king can't just be David. This king is greater than anything David has accomplished because if you look at verse 8, the extent of this king's territory is everything. Everything. The nations will be your heritage. The ends of the earth, your possession. This king is a bigger deal than David. This king is actually great David's greater son, King Jesus. Friends, this is why we read Romans 1 this morning for our opposite testament reading. You might not have caught it there in verse 4, but in Romans 1, we often kind of start these epistles in the New Testament. We sort of like skip the introductions. We think like, oh man, this isn't the important stuff. Like, let's get down to where he talks about, you know, justification, which is going to be later. We often kind of just miss the beginning part. But at the very beginning of Paul's letter to the Romans, he says, Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus, by his resurrection, was enthroned as the king on David's throne, reigning forever over not just Israel, but over everything. Jesus is king over all. One theologian named Abraham Kuyper, after whom I named my golden retriever, says this. He said, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine, this belongs to me. Friends, understand what is being said here in Psalm 2. There is no option to carve out our own sphere of autonomy because Jesus lays claim to everything. He lays claim to every molecule in the universe. And verse 9 tells us that not only does he lay claim to everything in the universe, but he will shatter the rebellion. He will break the rebellion. He will destroy the autonomy and the self-sufficiency. In fact, Jesus will overthrow every sin, whether it is religious sin or irreligious sin. He will conquer the sovereign citizens. In the Westminster Shorter Catechism, which we're going to read here shortly as our affirmation of faith, it says the first thing Jesus does as our king is subdue us to himself. 
Which means the first thing that Jesus does for you as your king is conquer you. You are going to be conquered and you have been conquered by King Jesus who rules over everything. He lays claim to everything, even our thoughts and our words and our deeds. And this is why we get to the New Testament and Jesus says, do you want to follow the law? Then love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. What Jesus is saying when he says those things is like, I'm not the Lord of your heart. I'm the Lord of the universe. Everything is mine. Everything belongs to me. Even the things you think in the privacy of your own mind. And friends, this is not good news for rebellious people. This is not good news for people that want to go their own way and be autonomous and be self-sufficient. So what should a rebellious people do with this king? It's fascinating to me that the end of Psalm 2, verses 10 to 12, the conclusion to this majestic psalm about a king who reigns over everything is not mocking. It's not gloating. It's not God giving an ultimatum saying, yeah, give it your best shot, king. See how that goes for you. It ends with an invitation. It ends with an invitation. Verses 10 and 11 say, kings, be wise. Submit to God. Submit to his king. Rejoice that this holy God wants to be in a relationship with you. Rejoice and tremble at the depth and the profundity of his mercy and his grace. Verse 12 says, we should submit to Jesus while we can. It's urgent. Because he will return and when he returns, he will judge the world. And at that point, submission will be too late. Kiss the son. That's what it means to submit to Jesus. We kiss like you would kiss the ring of a ruler. Friends, what this teaches us, what this reminds us, is something we see affirmed throughout the scriptures over and over and over and over again. And that is that God does not delight in judgment. He delights to show mercy. We have a God who doesn't delight to judge evil people. He delights to show mercy. You see it in Ezekiel 18, 23, when he says, I don't want to judge the wicked. I would rather they just turn away from their evil. You see it in 1 Timothy 2, 4. God wishes that all would come to a knowledge of the truth. You see it in 2 Peter 3, 9, when it says God's not slow to fulfill this promise to make all things new. God is patient, hoping that all will reach repentance. Psalm 2 ends not with a declaration of God's sovereignty and his imminent judgment. It ends with a God standing there with open hands before us, more willing to forgive us than we even are to sin. You see, friends, this king, King Jesus, is not just a king. He is also the rescuer of sinners. Because this king came to earth, took on a human nature, 
This king was God himself, took on a human nature, lived a life that we couldn't live. Jesus loved the Lord his God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength every second of every day. He loved his neighbor as himself. And then, in reward for his profound and perfect obedience, he died the death of a rebel. He died the death of a sinner. And on the cross of Jesus, he took the full weight of God's wrath against sin. So that sinners like me and you and all of us can be welcomed by God with open arms. I love the way verse 12 ends. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Friends, there is no refuge from the king. There is only refuge in the king. So what should a rebellious people do? What should people with sovereign citizen hearts do? They should turn to Jesus. Turn to Jesus. And that's language we sometimes use but don't actually stop to explain. And so if you're here this morning and you don't even know what that even means when I say that you should turn to Jesus, it means this. First of all, this psalm is calling you to an honest assessment of your own heart. An honest assessment of your own life. It's calling you to see that inwardly and inside you are sinful and you are selfish and you are rebellious. Even if that looks religious or if it looks irreligious. That is what is happening in your heart. This psalm is calling us to see that that sin, that inward selfishness is an affront to a holy God. He hates sin because it's not the way he created his world to be. But friends, it also means trusting that Jesus, that his death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead covers all of your sin because it has satisfied God's wrath against all sin. It covers all your sin, past and present and future. And so we are called not only to trust that Jesus has paid the penalty for our rebellion, but we are called to turn away from our sin and to strive to walk in obedience. But the Christian life doesn't end there. It's not like we do that once and we're kind of done forever. Because the reality is we fail over and over and over and over Again, the whole of the Christian life is coming to trust more and more in, that, in what Christ has done on our behalf, turning more and more away from our sin as we recognize it in our hearts and in our lives, and striving to walk in obedience. It's faith, it's repentance, and it's obedience all day, every day. That is the whole of the Christian life. What do a rebellious people need 
And what should a rebellious people do? They should turn to Christ in faith. They should turn away from their sin. They should strive to walk in obedience. That's what Psalm 2 is teaching. Would you pray with me? Father, we come to you this morning as rebellious people, as people who want to go our own way and do our own thing and be autonomous and self-sufficient, who don't want to need anything. And Lord, whether our rebellion is religious or irreligious, we pray that you would conquer us, conquer our hearts, subdue us to yourself. Father, we pray that you would give us the gift of faith, that you would give us the gift of repentance, that what you require from us, you would provide to us, and that you would empower us even this morning to walk in obedience, to walk in submission to King Jesus. Lord, even now as we come to your table, we pray that you would be at work in us that you would take this ordinary bread and this ordinary cup and by your Holy Spirit use them for an extraordinary purpose to anchor us in Christ's work on our behalf. And we pray these things in his name. Amen.